Welcome back to the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley Beatty. I'm speaking to you at this moment in September 2020, following the news of Justice Ginsburg's passing. This podcast is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's career as an advocate. From 1972 to 1978, before she became a judge and long before she became notorious RBG, Ginsburg argued six cases before the Supreme Court. In all six cases, I use this podcast to take the real recordings of those oral arguments. These tapes allow you to be a fly on the wall of history. You can hear a young Ruth Bader Ginsburg make her case and listen to reactions from the all-male bench. And you will hear Ginsburg change the world, change our world, by finding a home for women in the U.S. Constitution. On Friday night, I re-released the first episode of this podcast, Feet Off Our Necks, which breaks down Ginsburg's first oral argument before the Supreme Court. Here is her second, and I plan to re-release all of the episodes in the coming days. May it give you hope. We shall be left with the blind, the lame, and the women. Welcome back to another episode of the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley. I'm so excited to dive deep into today's case, Khan vs. Shevin, also known as the Palm Beach Widow case, which is unbelievably rich with historical and legal complexity. But if you listened to the last episode, Feed Off Our Necks, you're going to be ready for this. In Khan vs. Shevin, Ginsburg challenged my home state of Florida's law according a special tax exemption to female widows, but not male widowers. The case was brought by a widower named Mel Khan, who applied for the property tax exemption, but was denied on account of his sex. He was assisted by the ACLU affiliate office in Florida, and Ginsburg represented him before the Supreme Court. And Ginsburg lost. This is actually the only case that Ginsburg argued before the Supreme Court and lost. And for that reason, Khan is often painted over in all of the hagiography of Ginsburg, including in the documentary and some key biographies. But I think that the fact that she lost this case makes it all the more interesting and all the more worth our time. This case was hard for a bunch of reasons. For one, it was not part of the plan. One day, Ginsburg was just catching up on the news, reading up on what's going on in the old Supreme Court, and she read that the Supreme Court granted review to a case at the ACL Florida affiliate, yes, that the ACLU where she was a director, had lost in the Florida Supreme Court. What happened was that this widower, Mel Khan, was assisted by the ACLU affiliate office in Florida. But the Florida Supreme Court upheld the law over Khan and the ACLU Florida office's challenge. The Florida Supreme Court reasoned that this Florida law, according a special tax exemption to widows but not widowers, bore a fair and substantial relation to the goal of reducing the disparity between the economic capabilities of a man and a woman. Against the ACLU National Office's policy, the Florida office did not tell the National Office about the case until after the Supreme Court granted review. Ginsburg was less than pleased about this development. Ginsburg's plan was to take her favorite case of all of these six, Weinberger versus Weissenfeld, which we'll learn about in the fourth episode, to the Supreme Court next. That case had excellent facts. And it would have been a better next step in service of she and the ACLU's ultimate goal. Their ultimate goal of this whole project was to strike down a system of American law that legislated both sexes into sex role stereotypes. Man as breadwinner and woman as economically dependent homemaker. And Ginsburg had a deliberate method, an intentional strategy, for bringing about that change before this conservative Supreme Court, which actually had four new Nixon appointees. Believe it or not, in the space of just two years between 1969 and 1971, Nixon put four new justices on the court. Chief Justice Berger, Justice Blackman, Justice Powell, and Justice Rehnquist. So Ginsburg is taking stock of this Supreme Court, and her strategy was to bring the right cases with the right facts that will bring these justices and this Supreme Court to an understanding of the ways in which laws distinguishing on the basis of sex held all Americans back from full participation in American life. Suffice it to say that Mel Kahn's case is not that case. When Ginsburg found out that it was going to the court, she was dismayed. 
she wrote to a friend, I'll give you a gold medal if you can suggest any route other than equal protection for widower Khan. But although she was not fond of the case, she agreed to brief it and argue it in order to minimize any damage to the Women's Rights Project's broader litigation strategy. Here are some of the challenges that Ginsburg faced with this case. For one, the value of this property tax exemption was $15. Petty much, Melcon? No, it's not petty, but I'm, you know, $15. And what's even harder is that this Florida law was the type of legislation that many would describe as benign or protective legislation. It's the type of law that accorded special status or special privileges to women. The type of law that, as we learned on the last episode, Phyllis Schlafly and the Stop ERA movement were relying on to build mounting waves of political support. And as we heard in the last episode, it was really hard for many of these justices and many of these lawyers, including the liberal lawyer from the Southern Poverty Law Center in the last case, to see how these types of laws, so-called protective legislation, harmed women in the long run. Because even if this protective legislation provided some material benefit, like this tax exemption, in the short term, they were built upon and perpetuated women's status as economically dependent on men, as confined to the home, as too delicate and too fragile for the real world. And then things get even trickier. Remember that Ginsburg's goal was to get the Supreme Court to recognize that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment requires courts to examine laws discriminating on the basis of sex under a higher standard, not just to rubber stamp all such laws under that really, really low rational basis test, but rather to conduct a more searching inquiry to see if laws actually serve a compelling governmental interest. But also remember that everyone, including Ginsburg, acknowledges that the core purpose of the 14th Amendment, which was enacted right after the Civil War, was to eliminate invidious racial discrimination. And this very real tension between the constitutional law that applies to racial discrimination and the constitutional law that applies to sex discrimination is on full display at this particular moment in history. This con argument is split into two days. And on the second day, when Ginsburg gives her rebuttal, the justices are going to hear oral argument in the first affirmative action case ever to reach the Supreme Court, DeFunis versus Odegaard. And some of these justices are going to really struggle with making the jump from that case, where lawyers are arguing that the admissions policy that was favorable to African Americans should be upheld, and this case, where lawyers are arguing that a law favoring women should be struck down. And you're going to hear Ginsburg try to thread this needle by stating in the clearest possible terms why sex discrimination and racial discrimination differ in their manifestations in American law. She'll emphasize that this property tax exemption was not designed to put women on the right course to become economically equal to men. Instead, it was built on Victorian notions of women's place in the home and meant to perpetuate women's status as economically dependent on men. Despite her best efforts, it didn't work. Ginsburg lost the case, and the lineup of the justices is fascinating. We're going to have a defector from the Frontier 04, the four justices that formed the plurality that would have extended strict scrutiny to laws discriminating on the basis of sex. Justice William O. Douglas, who writes this opinion. Why did he defect? Why did someone willing to go as far as feminists had ever asked, applying strict scrutiny to laws discriminating on the basis of sex, go so far as to author the decision in the only case that Ginsburg ever lost? His mother. Before rolling the tape, let's step into the mind of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on this chilly morning in Washington, D.C. in February 1974, as she steps up to the podium. So last episode, I caught you up on where Ginsburg was in her career at that point. In the few years leading up to the Frontier Oral Argument in January of 1973, Ginsburg had really taken a career shift away from teaching civil procedure and towards taking the helm of this Herculean effort to recognize sex equality under the U.S. Constitution. Today's oral argument in Khan is taking place just over a year later in February of 1974. And alongside her work at the ACLU Women's Rights Project, Ginsburg was still teaching at Columbia Law School. And Columbia Law School is a really interesting microcosm and window into what the 1970s were like for women in the professions. In 1970, 
one in five students at Columbia Law School were women. But by 1972, just two years later, it was one in three. And many of these female students were inspired by Professor Ginsburg, who was the only tenured woman professor on the faculty. I read in Jane DeHart's biography of Ginsburg that some of her female students from that time later reflected on how much of a role model that she was for them. They noted with appreciation that she owned her femininity and her family life, while being incredibly respected as an academic. In other words, she didn't try to confine herself to male stereotype. Okay, so it's time to roll the tape. Ginsburg is about to get her very first question from a Supreme Court justice, because as you'll remember from the last episode, she did not get a single question in her first oral argument. The question is about whether Ginsburg's client, Mel Kahn, alleged that this tax exemption in Florida violated the U.S. Constitution and that his claims weren't just limited to the Florida Constitution. Because, and I'll explain this a bit more later, in order for an appellate court to decide an issue in your case, the courts below must have considered that issue. I think in some ways you'll hear a different Ginsburg on today's tape. Her advocacy in this oral argument feels confident, self-assured, and strong. But in today's argument in Khan, I think you'll also note some moments of real frustration and even indignation as she tries to show these justices how so-called benign discrimination is anything but. She knows that this case is going to be an uphill battle, and she seems armored for battle. She's ready for the questions that are going to come her way. Ginsburg, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice. If you'd like to lower the lectern, you're quite at liberty to do so. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Oh my gosh, Chief Justice Berger being a little bit too on brand, but it's 1974 and we're rolling with it. Appellant Mel Khan, a Florida resident, is a widower. In January 1971, based on his status as a surviving spouse, he applied to the Dade County Tax Assessor for a property tax exemption. The statute under which widow Khan sought exemption provided a widow, along with disabled persons, is entitled to exempt $500 yearly from her property tax. Mel Khan was denied the claimed exemption solely on the ground of his sex. Requesting judicial review, he alleged that the statute under which he claimed exemption had been interpreted and applied in conflict with the Equal Protection Guarantee of the 14th Amendment. Actually, he didn't allege that in the trial. Didn't he expressly say that he didn't want to raise this federal question there? In the original complaint, he suggested that he might save out the federal question till a later time, but then the federal question was raised and decided with the agreement of all parties. But he, but he didn't simply say he might save it. He said he, he wanted to save it, didn't he? Yes, but apparently... With the understanding of the court and the agreement of both sides, the federal question was heard and decided both in the, in the trial court and in the, court, and in the Florida Supreme Court. Um, appellant sought a declaration that the exemption provision is unconstitutional insofar as it excludes widowers. On cross motions for summary judgment, the court of first instance held that the statute by according exemption to all widows and excluding all widowers, discriminated arbitrarily between widowed persons and therefore violated the equal protection guarantees of the state and federal constitution. On appeal, the Florida Supreme Court reversed. The Florida Supreme Court held that the distinction between surviving spouses, though based solely on gender, did not deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. Ginsburg got her first question. Chief Justice Berger asked Ginsburg about a waiver issue. And waiver is this concept that if you don't raise an argument in the lower court, then you're not allowed to raise it on appeal. This makes a ton of sense because if you have a trial in a dog bite case, for example, about whether a dog bit you, and then you want to raise a totally unrelated issue on appeal, like let's say defamation or negligence or something, it doesn't really make much sense for the appellate court to consider that defamation issue because it wouldn't be considering an appeal from the trial court. 
Obviously, waiver issues can be much more tricky when they're on the line in terms of whether a party has properly raised it before the lower court. And so Chief Justice Berger asked Ginsburg whether Melcon raised his federal question in the trial court. That is, whether he raised his Equal Protection Clause argument under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, as opposed to his Florida constitutional arguments. But as you just heard, Justice Rehnquist jumped in and seemed to suggest that he didn't see much of a waiver issue. And Ginsburg moved on to explaining what happened in the lower courts. She explained that the Court of First Instance in Florida ruled in favor of Melcon but that the Florida Supreme Court overruled that decision and held that the property tax exemption was constitutional. Ginsburg will now turn to the heart of this case. She will describe how the Florida law Mel Kahn is challenging discriminates against both men and women. It is appellant's position that the gender-based distinction upheld by the Florida Supreme Court discriminates invidiously in two respects. First, Most obviously, it discriminates against men who have lost their wives. More subtly, but as surely, it discounts the contribution made to the marital unit and the family economy by the female partner for her death occasions no exemption for the surviving spouse. Something that I often see played up about Ginsburg's cases in the 70s is that she represented men. And it is true that in four of Ginsburg's six cases that she argued before the Supreme Court, she represented men. And in one, Frontiero, she represented a couple, one man and one woman. And I do think that representing male plaintiffs was a critical component of her strategy. Most obviously, the male plaintiff forced these judges and justices, who were mostly men, to think through how these laws affected all Americans, not just women. And if you go just one step deeper... Representing men helped Ginsburg show how so-called benign discrimination, laws that accorded women with special benefits or special privileges, actually hurt women. It's not as simple as the fact that Mel Kahn didn't get a benefit that a woman would have gotten. It was about revealing a system of American law that treated women one way and men another, that legislated sex role stereotypes in a way that was harmful to both men and women. Under this system of American law, men were breadwinners and women were homemakers. And women were either rewarded for conforming to their sex-based stereotypes, like receiving extra cash when widowed, or penalized for not conforming, like joining the military and earning more than their spouses. And the same was true for men. By defining the exempt person as widow rather than surviving spouse, this provision now covering the blind and the totally disabled along with the widow, is kin to a classification delineated by the president of one of our nation's leading educational institutions, anticipating an increase in conscription not too many years ago, this distinguished educator complained, we shall be left with the blind, the lame, and the women. This court's decision in Reed v. Reed, 404 U.S., and its judgment in Frontiero v. Richardson, 411 U.S., indicate genuine concern to analyze sex classifications free from the generalizations of the Victorian age. Appellant maintains that the Reed standard is not met by a surviving spouse tax exemption that uses gender as the sole criterion for qualification, for if need is the concern, then sex should not be a substitute for an income test. And if widowed state is the concern, then it is irrational to distinguish between taxpayers based on their sex. Far from constituting a rational shorthand for distinguishing between taxpayers on the basis of need or life situation, a widow's only classification is a crude device that originated in and today perpetuates Victorian assumptions concerning the station of men and women. Ginsburg is trying to get these justices to understand a concept that's very difficult for them to grasp. She's trying to show how this Florida law had the effect of characterizing being a widowed woman, but not a widowed man, as a form of disability. 
In making this connection explicit, she quoted Harvard's president, who expressed fear during the height of conscription of men in the Vietnam War, that Harvard would be left with the blind, the lame, and the women. Ginsburg gets that this is a really tough case. So she's being extremely clear about how this particular classification is not genuinely designed to compensate women for their lack of opportunity in the workforce. As she just said, this law is actually designed to perpetuate Victorian notions of women in the home and men in the workplace. And she suggests that this might be different if this law was more narrowly tailored. If need is the concern, then sex should not be a substitute for an income test that actually tests needs. And as the justices will get into more later, this law is overbroad because even the wealthy widows of Palm Beach are receiving a tax benefit. And if widowed state is the concern, if losing your spouse is the concern of the government, then it's irrational to distinguish between taxpayers based on sex. All of those who've lost their spouses should receive this tax exemption. Ginsburg will now turn to the heart of this case and really the heart of all of the cases that we're going to be exploring. What standard of review should apply to sex classifications? So you already know this because you're a Ginsburg Tapes listener, but here's a quick refresher. This whole standard of review debate is really just about how carefully courts scrutinize a law that makes a distinction on the basis of sex. And at this time, there's really only two standards that can apply. On one end of the spectrum, courts could apply what's called rational basis review, and that's a really, really low standard. If a law is challenged under the Equal Protection Clause and rational basis review applies, courts will uphold the law if the government offers pretty much any explanation for the distinction based on sex. On the other end of the spectrum, courts could apply what's called strict scrutiny, and that's that really, really high standard that we learned about. When strict scrutiny applies, courts require the government to provide a really strong, compelling reason for the law in order to uphold that law against constitutional challenge. And you'll hear at the beginning, Ginsburg state, that Reed and Frontiero require more than surface examination, something more than that really, really low standard of rational basis review. But fascinatingly, in her cautious, one might say judicious, pragmatic incrementalism, she's not going to insist that this case needs to be used as a vehicle for the Supreme Court to raise the bar and apply strict scrutiny to laws discriminating on the basis of sex. But Ginsburg is smart. She knows that this level of scrutiny is at the top of the minds of these justices. And if they do use this tough case with these hard facts as a vehicle to finally state clearly what standard of review should apply to laws making distinctions on the basis of sex, she wants that standard to be the really, really high standard that applies to laws discriminating on the basis of race, national origin, or alienage. Strict scrutiny review. So Ginsburg is going to proactively take on a very obvious counterargument to her position. Isn't racial discrimination and sex discrimination very different? Well, then why should sex discrimination receive the same level of scrutiny? To resolve this case, the court need not go beyond the scrutiny employed in Reed and followed by the Tenth Circuit in Moritz v. Commissioner, 469 F. Second. The decision in Reed and the judgment in Frontiero indicate the court's clear willingness to give sex classifications more than surface examination. However, if the court wants to consider application of a suspect classification doctrine, then it must face the fact that problems of race and sex discrimination are often different and that neither women nor blacks are aided by lumping the two together for all purposes. Thus far, this court has applied the label suspect classification only in opinions involving discrimination hostile to groups not dominant in society. But whatever may be said for a one-way suspect classification doctrine in cases involving racial discrimination, a one-way approach in sex discrimination cases would be fraught with danger for women because of the historic tendency of jurists to rationalize any special treatment of women as benignly in their favor. 
With respect to race, the effects of officially sanctioned segregation are still very much with us. But complex doctrines directed to the continuing impact of racial segregation are not necessarily applicable to sex discrimination. The difference is perhaps best illustrated with respect to the educational experience. Most public education is co-educational, though females have been segregated and restricted in some areas, most notably vocational training and athletics. But generally, females participate with males in academic programs in elementary and high school, and in fact, tend to do better there than males. <laughs> For many females, this record of achievement continues into college and university. For example, females outscore males on the law school admissions test. The problem for women is that along the way, an attitude is instilled insidiously. This attitude is described in a nutshell in graffiti etched on a college library carol in the early 1950s. The epigram reads, study hard, get good grades, get your degree, get married, have three kids, die and be buried. From the first line, the sex of the writer is impossible to determine. From the second, her sex is impossible to mistake. To cure the problem felt so acutely by the young woman who wrote those words and so many others like her, the law must stop using sex as a shorthand for functional description. It must deal with the parent, not the mother, with the homemaker, not the housewife, and with the surviving spouse, not the widow. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper and break down this constitutional doctrine and why Ginsburg is drawing these connections between racial discrimination and sex discrimination. But I'm also really curious what you all think of this strategy in light of the constitutional doctrine. Because even though these comparisons have doctrinal underpinnings, to be candid, for me, they're a little bit hard to listen to. One oral argument can't take on every issue at once. But sometimes it doesn't feel like these comparisons are sufficiently sensitive to the ways in which racial minorities have been oppressed in American society and in American history. And if you have any thoughts, feel free to send them my way at ginsburgtapes at gmail.com. Okay, so the 14th Amendment was enacted in the wake of the Civil War in 1868. And as Ginsburg acknowledged in her brief in Frontiero, the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was definitely to eliminate invidious racial discrimination. So I think that the next logical question is, how did the court go from the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to this concept of strict scrutiny review? This concept of requiring an extremely strong justification for laws that make certain distinctions or burden certain fundamental rights. And how did the Supreme Court extend this doctrine beyond the context of racial discrimination to include laws that made distinctions based on national origin and alienage? So the birthplace, the genesis of strict scrutiny, is this famous footnote four in a case called United States versus Caroline Products, which came out in 1938. It's so interesting to me that this Caroline Products decision came out 70 years after the 14th Amendment was passed. And in that way, I think it's a really good illustration of how constitutional law can change over time. So in this famous footnote in this decision, and I realize the fact that footnotes are famous is pretty ridiculous. Justice Harlan Fiskstone left open the possibility that a more rigorous form of scrutiny might apply to laws making distinctions around these lines. In the footnote, the justice wrote, prejudice against discrete and insular minorities may be a special condition, which tends to seriously curtail the operation of those political processes ordinarily to be relied upon to protect minorities, and which may call for a correspondingly more searching judicial inquiry. In the years that followed, racial classifications were treated as suspect. In 1971, in the case Graham v. Richardson, the Supreme Court extends strict scrutiny to laws that make distinction based on alienage. The Graham case involved a state law denying welfare benefits to certain non-citizens. And the Supreme Court invalidated the law because classifications based on alienage, 
like those based on nationality or race, are inherently suspect. Quoting the now-famous Caroline products, the court explained that the classification was suspect because aliens as a class are a prime example of a discrete and insular minority for whom such heightened judicial solicitude is appropriate. And so Ginsburg is just coming up the heels of that decision, and she believed that strict scrutiny should be extended to laws discriminating on the basis of sex. And on the one hand, Ginsburg had doctrine on her side, because the court had shown a willingness to extend strict scrutiny beyond the context of discrimination based on race, which was the original core purpose for the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. But on the other hand, she's facing an uphill battle. Women are not a minority. And as this case demonstrates, the ways in which American law operated to the detriment of women was different in kind to the ways in which American law operated to the detriment of minority groups. And I think this distinction in the way that discrimination played out in American law is exemplified by the difference between this case and a case that the justices are listening to the very next day in January of 1974. So as chance would have it, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments in the first affirmative action case to ever reach the Supreme Court the very day after the tape that we're listening to today. So DeFunis involved a white applicant who argued that the University of Washington's affirmative action program was unconstitutional. And in that case, the university would respond that the admissions policy that was favorable to African Americans should be upheld. While here in Khan, Ginsburg is arguing that the property tax exemption that's favorable to women should be struck down. This surface-level inconsistency existed because, as Ginsburg just acknowledged, discrimination based on sex and discrimination based on race have quite different histories and quite different manifestations in American law. So-called reverse discrimination based on race, including policies like affirmative action, served to correct systemic injustice. Equality of opportunity for race did not necessarily require race-blind laws, because some laws, like affirmative action, did tend to genuinely have compensatory aims, and to set a better course following centuries of racial injustice. I'm obviously not doing Defunis justice, and it should be its own podcast, but I think it's worth exploring these contrasts in order to get into the minds of these justices on this day. They're new to these concepts, and they're having to make an important mindset shift between Khan and DeFunis. The epigram that Ginsburg just read is a perfect illustration of the nature of sex discrimination in American law and American society. Study hard, get good grades, get your degree, get married, have three kids die, and be buried. This epigram reminds me of an anecdote from a commencement address delivered by one of my favorite humans of all time, the screenwriter Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron graduated from Wellesley, the prestigious all-female college, in 1962. She said in a commencement address that the Harvard Crimson had this snippy article that said that Wellesley was a school for tunicata. Tunicata apparently being a small fish who spent their first part of their lives frantically swimming around the ocean floor exploring their environment, and the second part of their lives just lying there breeding. It was mean and snippy, but it had the horrible ring of truth. And it was one of those do not ask for whom the bell tolls things, and it burned itself into our brains. Years later, Nora Ephron said at her 25th reunion, one of her classmates mentioned it, and everyone remembered what tunicata were, word for word. Ginsburg sought to eliminate a system of American law that served to pigeonhole women into these traditional gender roles and to cement their economic dependency on men. And this generally included so-called benign law. To appreciate the character of the challenge classification, the widow's only exemption must be viewed in historical context. The exemption became part of Florida's law in 1885. At that time, indeed well into the 20th century, Florida law routinely differentiated between the roles of men and women, and particularly married men and married women. Women could not vote, nor did they serve on juries, for example. Well past the middle of the 20th century, in fact, up till 1968, a Florida married woman could not transfer even her own interest in real property without her husband's consent. Not surprisingly, the married woman was deemed worthy of special solicitude. On the death of the person, the law regarded as her guardian, her superior, not her peer. 
While the widow's only exemption was designed with the 19th century status of married women in mind, the Florida Supreme Court found contemporary justification for it in this unquestionable fact. Women workers as a class do not earn as much as men. This well-known and still wide earnings gap, according to the Florida Supreme Court, supplies a fair and substantial basis for the tax classification widow rather than surviving spouse. But beyond doubt, a widow's only exemption has no impact whatever on the conditions responsible for the earnings gap. Too clear. You are arguing that sex ought not be treated as a suspect classification? I am arguing that if, first, that it is not necessary to deal with that question in this case, but second, that if sex is treated as a suspect classification, which I think properly it is, then the court must be aware that the argument that we give special scrutiny only to lines that appear to disfavor women will be ultimately harmful to women because the history has been... So it's suspect plus. It, it is the classification, it is the criterion sex that is suspect, not female, but the criterion sex. Generally, isn't it uh, the fact that uh, the court has found uh, classification to be suspect when it involves a, a discriminatory classification against a minority group? Yes. Is that, that, that accurate? In this court's precedent, the suspect label well, has see, been the, used... The paradigm is, is race. Yes, and, and national and minority race. Minority race. Yes. And, and what uh, was looked at was... Alien age is another... Presumably, right? Alienage, yes. So the suspect classification is <coughs> only with respect to discriminatory classification against a minority group. Is that correct? That is how it has been used in this court's precedent. Traditionally up until now. Yes. So you all know by now that in both Frontiero and Reed versus Reed, Ginsburg argued that the Supreme Court should rule that laws discriminating on the basis of sex should receive strict scrutiny review, like laws that classify based on race, national origin, or alienage. But Ginsburg is taking a step back in this case, and she's taking a much more cautious approach. She's arguing that the Supreme Court need not reach the question of what level of scrutiny should apply in this case. Ginsburg clearly feared that the court would reach a decision that would sound the death knell to the ACLU Women's Rights Project's efforts. She was worried that the court would use this case to explicitly rule that sex was not a suspect classification and that laws discriminating on the basis of sex should be upheld so long as they had a rational basis. And as the justices are grappling out loud about what the Constitution requires when they review laws that make distinctions on the basis of sex, she's really emphasizing a note of caution. She's kind of sounding the alarm bells, waving her arms, and saying, be very wary of this argument that strict scrutiny should be applied only selectively to laws that perpetuate invidious discrimination and not laws that perpetuate benign discrimination. She's warning them off of the same argument that Levin made for the Frontieros back in episode one. And uh, your point, I, I gather, is that, uh, I don't know that you've mentioned it, but women, first of all, are not a minority group. And secondly, uh, uh, since courts have been in the habit to view any classification of women as a beneficent yes. uh, provision, courts should be on guard and not... Uh, Yes, my point is that for women, the sec what will aid women most is not looking to see whether a classification is benign mm. or invidious, but whether it is a sex right. criterion as a shorthand for what should be a functional right. criterion. In other words, you don't want it, whether it helps you, even if it helps. Uh, my question is if it ever does help, right. yes. But even if it does, you would assume... On that assumption, well, I have not yet found any such classification in the law that genu genuinely helps. Uh, from a very short-sighted viewpoint, perhaps, such as this one, yes. But, uh, but long run, no. I think that what women need is, first of all, a removal of exclusions and restrictive quotas. They are the only population group that today still faces outright exclusions and restrictive quotas, and then what is necessary is a welcome sign, uh, a notice that in the professions, 
in trades and occupations, women are now as welcome as men. But the notion that they need special favored treatment because they are women, I think, has been what has helped to keep women in a special place and has kept them away from equal opportunity for so long. In other words, take this exemption. It's not the purpose of this exemption to eliminate discrimination against women. It isn't the purpose to uh, to eliminate discrimination in pay or uh, to uh, equalize training, study, job opportunities for them. In stark contrast to this to this widow's exemption are measures that are realistically designed to promote equal opportunity, free from gender-based discrimination. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, for example. These measures focus on eliminating sex typing of this very order as the essential task. Nor can an exemption of this kind be regarded as a rational welfare measure to alleviate the effects of past discrimination against women. As a welfare measure supposedly directed to the ability of women property owners to pay taxes, the exemption is incredibly designed. <coughs> it encompasses the independently wealthy widow, and at the same time, it excludes the woman who encounters perhaps the sharpest discrimination, the female head of household who never married. In sum, the classification is obviously unrelated to any biological difference between men and women. It is not fairly and substantially related to the need or life situation of the individual man or woman, but it is very much related to underestimation of the woman's contribution to the family economy. Significantly, the Florida Supreme Court on other days has demonstrated its understanding of the very real and substantial economic contribution made by the female partner, whether as homemaker, through gainful employment, or as is increasingly the case, through productive effort both in and outside the home. Ginsburg is trying so hard to get her central points across here. Benign legislation is not actually benign. Women are harmed by this Florida law's perpetuation of the stereotype of financial dependency. And I think it's fair to say that the justices are not making this easy. This intangible injury is exactly the kind of case that an all-male bench of elderly justices are struggling with at this point in history. And you can hear Berger saying, well, well, what if the statute helps? And Ginsburg is explaining that she has yet to find a truly benign legislation, one that does not intangibly harm women by cementing their dependency on men. For example, in this case, the single woman head of household who never marries would be most harmed by the statute in question because she is not conforming to sex role stereotypes. As far as the statute does not uh, differentiate among various uh, widows very, or various categories of widows, it's very typical of tax legislation generally, isn't it? Yes, the... the I mean, certainly the federal income tax, which gives every taxpayer an exemption of $750 for each dependent regardless of his circumstances or the dependent circumstances uh, uh, if he's below a certain age uh, is certainly very a very blunt instrument so i cut that exchange between chief justice berger and ginsburg short but you get the idea mel Kahn's challenge to this florida law is really hard for two reasons the first is the one we've already been talking about this is the type of law that some see as benign discrimination and the second is the one that we just heard in that exchange it's tax legislation. The Supreme Court has tended to be quite deferential to de legislatures when they draw classifications in the tax context. And a perfect example is the one that Chief Justice Berger just alluded to, the federal income tax, which gives every taxpayer an exemption for dependents. Some people have dependents, others don't, like me. And legislatures can divide among the public along those lines, even if it doesn't have a relationship to the person's income or financial means. Ginsburg is now going to wrap up by confronting yet another difficulty of this case. Chief Justice Berger and Justice Marshall will press Ginsburg on the question of remedy. And the legal remedy is the means by which a court enforces a right, imposes a penalty, or makes a court order to impose its will. In other words, once the court decides a legal issue, what are they going to do about it? So the justices will ask Ginsburg, okay, so say we agree with you and we declare this Florida law unconstitutional. What do you suggest we do about it? 
I'm asking this court uh, to take the same approach that was taken in Frontiero uh, last semester, where a group of service spouses, in that case husbands, did not qualify for the exemption because the statute excluded them. And all this court held was that the statute was unconstitutional insofar as it excluded that class. And this court has plenary jurisdiction over the federal jurisdiction over the federal army. Yes. Well, ultimately... And we do not have it over the state of Florida. Ultimately, of course, that is a question for the Florida Supreme Court to answer. And it can answer that question um, for itself. But it would and you'd be perfectly satisfied if the end result of this case is that the widows get nothing. No, I do not think that that would be the uh, the reasonable approach for either the Florida Supreme Court or the Florida legislature to take. Uh, there's a further problem here that... Well, of course, if everybody, if the re- end result is that everybody gets an exemption, uh, that's the same as nobody getting an exemption. But all widowed persons get the exemption, and we're talking about a very small addition... <laughs> Since there are about four times as many, many widows in Florida as widowers, I suppose that a reasonable legislature looking at that larger class and wanting the exemption for that larger class would extend it to this much more, much smaller group rather as than the Marshall altogether. suggests that is a question ultimately up to the Supreme Court and or legislature of Florida. Yeah, that's quite it? correct, yes. All we ask of this Unlike court... Unlike Frontiero in that respect. We right? ask this court to declare the statute defective in that it excludes widowers. And the, the remaining relief would be an appropriate question for, for the Florida Supreme Court. So on this tricky question of remedy, Ginsburg is making very clear that her desired outcome is that the word widow be replaced with the words surviving spouse. Her goal is not to eliminate the tax exemption entirely. She wants to remove the assumption codified in law that women are economically dependent on men. But the justices are wary, and I think justifiably, of so directly legislating from the bench, particularly in a case involving state law. And later in this back and forth, Chief Justice Berger will jump in and say, we've gone far in legislating from the bench, but we haven't gone that far. And in the clip that you just heard, Justice Marshall is pointing out a really important practical risk of Ginsburg's strategy. If the court doesn't replace widow with surviving spouse because it doesn't see that as its proper role as a judiciary body rather than a legislative body, and instead it declares the law unconstitutional and remands it to the Florida courts to determine what the outcome should be, there's a risk that the Florida courts will strike down the whole property tax exemption denying it to women who would really benefit from the exemption. And I think Ginsburg really has to accept that risk here. But she justifies her strategy by saying that you can't fault Mel Kahn for this possible outcome. But you can do what Justice Brandeis suggested in the Iowa-Des Moines case, 284 U.S., and that is to say that this this, uh, appellant must be granted the exemption because there is no other way that his claim of a denial of equal protection can be redressed. So Ginsburg's argument was followed by Sidney McKenzie, who's an assistant attorney general from Florida, and he's going to defend this Florida law. Unsurprisingly, McKenzie will argue that the four-justice plurality decision from Frontiero is not binding on this case. It doesn't mean that the sex classification in this Florida law should receive strict scrutiny review. And then he's going to argue that this Florida law does not violate the Equal Protection Clause under any standard of review. And I think if you listen closely, you can really tell just how muddled the law was as to what standard of review courts should apply in assessing the constitutionality of laws discriminating on the basis of sex. First of all, that the compelling interest test uh, of the frontier plurality should not be applied to sex classifications. And secondly, that the classification of widows to the exclusion of widowers in view of the purpose and the factual realities of this situation does not, as applied to the appellant here, violate the equal protection, either whether tested by Frontiero in the plurality or by the standard in Reed, if in fact that's different from traditional standards, or by traditional tax classification and sex standards. I'm going to play a really interesting exchange between McKenzie and Justice Thurgood Marshall. 
this exchange is going to get at an interesting feature of this case. By singling out widows as a class, this protective legislation sweeps up every woman who's ever lost their husband in Florida. Even, and now you guys will see why I've been calling this the Palm Beach widow case, the wealthied widowed women of South Florida. Does Florida give any other provision and benefit of women in their taxation other than this? Other than this particular? Yes, sir. Provision? I'm because not... I would assume that the widow, before she becomes a widow, if what you say is true, she suffers a lot too. Does Florida recognize that in this taxing scheme? Uh, women other than widowers? Uh-huh. I'm not familiar with any provisions. Well, why uh... single out the widows? Well, uh, was the, the will of the people in adopting the Constitution of the Well, on the facts, as when the Constitution was adopted the same as they are today. Pardon, Your Honor? Were women allowed to make contracts when this Constitution was this, first adopted? This Constitution was adopted in 1968, Your Honor. Wasn't it provision in before then in the old Constitution? Yes. And it was just carried over? I'm talking about when was it, it was... When was it originally in the Constitution? 1885, Your Honor. Well, aren't women in a little disposition now than they were in 1885? A little? In a better position now than they were in yeah. 1885? Yes, Your Honor. But, but clearly they're not, by any means, have been given economic equality in the society. And I think this is a, rec a recognition of that. But how can you put them in a class? I would assume that there's some widows in the, the Palm Beach area that are a little better off than some widowers in... Uh, Upper part of Florida. Well, I think the law has always recognized that, that no class is going to be perfect. Even if we took a, a $4,000 limit and said anyone who earns $4,000 or less uh, should get a $500 exemption. And I assume still have the, that's especially true in taxation. I assume that's what we would, Yes, Your Honor. We still have the problem with saying that there are people uh, who earn $4,000 who have no dependents and there are people who earn $4,001 who are, have 10 dependents and are much more needy. Uh, obviously, for the purpose of taxation, the states have never been called on to treat every case on an individual basis. And I think that well, uh, the court would recognize that that's not a, a practical possibility. I'm just trying to get the reason for this singling out. Uh, you agree this is solely on sex. I, I I would say it's it's sex as tied to economic reality. In other words, the class is not simply it's actually well. The, sec, the class is the difference between a widow and a widower other than sex. Other than sex? Yeah. Uh, one, the fact that that a widow widower being a man is recognized as having greater well, earning potential in our society. To become a widow. Pardon? There's no way for a widower to become a widow. No, there's no so it's way. Sex. What's wrong with admitting it? That it's based it, on sex. It's 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 based. But see, to say that it's based on sex is is accurate. But it's based on sex plus underlying an underlying recognition of a factual difference between the sexes, and not simply a stereotyped difference between men and women. Is this the same Constitution also preventing women from serving on juries? Didn't it? Yes, it did, Your Honor. The law of Florida prevented women from serving on juries. But now they do. Or it didn't prevent women from serving on juries. It, now it, they've been persuaded to let women serve on juries. Women were pre not prevented from serving on juries. They had to take affirmative action to, to indicate that they desired to serve on juries. Back in the 19th century? In the original At the time of the Hoyt case, Your Honor. In the time of the original Constitution? At the time of the original Constitution of Florida, I'm not prepared to... Say, Your Honor. Between this episode and the last episode, I think there's a merging theme with how you should answer Justice Marshall's questions. Directly. And this certainly is not unique to Justice Marshall. If a judge asks an oral advocate about facts or law that is difficult for your side of the case, don't avoid it. It makes you seem weaselly and untrustworthy. Rather, do the classic yes but. Yes, Justice Marshall. This Florida law distinguishes between widows and widowers, and that is a function of sex. But we should still win under the rational basis test that applies to laws discriminating on the basis of sex. That would have been a much more effective and much more direct answer to Justice Marshall's question. 
Okay, I'm gonna play just one more short clip from McKinsey's argument because I'm kind of obsessed with this notion of the Palm Beach widow and the overbreadth of this statute. It works to benefit the wealthy widow in Palm Beach. It, it works to, to benefit the wealthy uh, widow uh, and blind person also. The, the wealthy widow in Palm Beach and to disadvantage the poor spinster in Tallahassee. Right, but the, but the, the fact is that uh, as, as, as a general objective analysis, women are not in the women and widowers and widows are not in the same economic classification as as our widowers. They don't have the same opportunities. Spinster. That's a word that I haven't heard in a long time. Just to wrap up the summary of the government's argument. I think that throughout the exchange, you can hear even the liberal justices being suspicious of Ginsburg's arguments in this case. Because Ginsburg was representing the appellant in this case, the party that lost below, she had some rebuttal time, and it was really interesting. The justices asked Ginsburg directly about DeFunis, that affirmative action case that I spoke about earlier, because they were going to be listening to oral arguments on that case soon, and they wanted to know how that case related to this one. Here's a clip of the rebuttal. Professor Ginsburg, uh, could I ask a question? Uh, you're familiar with the DeFunis case to be argued this afternoon? Yes. This perhaps is an unfair question, but uh, does your position in this case, with respect to the Florida classifications, bear in any way on the issues in DeFunis? Uh, not at all. The DeFunis case raises a very different issue. DeFunis is a, is a program of a law school <coughs> that is designed to open doors to equal opportunity, uh, to assure uh, a law student body with diverse backgrounds ex uh, and experience, and to rectify the conspicuous absence of minority groups from the profession. It is not a welfare dole assumed based on the assumed inferior capabilities of any population group. No rigid race line is presented as we have here, a rigid sex line. Race is merely one of many characteristics assessed in that case. But most significantly, DeFunis involves no general law classification. It's a measure addressed to the very special selection problem that law schools have. Law schools have the very hard task of choosing some from among many applicants that are equipped to pursue their educational program. By contrast, here we are dealing with a law of general application, a law with respect to property owners, where there can be no justification for the crude device of labeling any group, racial, ethnic, or sexual, as needy persons. An income test is readily available to a legislature that wishes to distinguish on the basis of need. An immutable birth characteristic should be irrelevant for general law purposes. Thank you, Mr. Ginsburg. Thank you. The case is submitted. You can hear Justice Blackman's hesitation as he's asking Ginsburg this question. He's hedging, this may not be a fair question, but he goes on to ask her, how does your case, how does Mel Khan's case, relate to DeFunis. And remember that DeFunis is the first affirmative action case to reach the Supreme Court. And the justices are going to hear oral argument in that case this very same day. And I think there's probably a good oral advocacy lesson to be learned here, which is to learn about the other cases that are up for argument around the same time that your case is. It's a bit taboo to ask an attorney about their view on another attorney's case, but the reality is that the judges are thinking about it. And so if there's some sort of overlap between your case and another case of that day or week, learn about it, think about it, and think about the connections because the judges sure will be thinking about them. And so as I mentioned earlier, some of the justices are really struggling with the logic of DeFunis versus Mel Kahn's case. Because here, Ginsburg is arguing that the protective legislation at issue, extra benefits for widows, should be struck down. But as you just heard, she's supporting the affirmative action policy at issue in DeFunis. And that's a type of policy that some of the justices also see as protective policy. And we've really come full circle, back to the crux of Ginsburg's argument that the Equal Protection Clause should extend to sex even though the 14th Amendment was enacted with eliminating racial discrimination in mind. 
In response, she basically says, here, we are dealing with this totally general legislation that categorically assumes that women are more financially needy than men. But in Defunis, the oral argument that you're going to be listening to in a minute, justices, you're dealing with a law school that has an important objective of achieving diversity in the classroom. In the context of race, compensatory treatment was intended to create equality by increasing equal opportunity for minorities. And this is just a totally different type of discrimination than the context of sex. Quote-unquote preferential treatment for women was not aimed to open doors for women that had long been closed to them, and this legislation is a perfect example of that. So I know we're all dying to know what Justice Blackman thought of Ginsburg's performance since he gives those graded report cards to the lawyers that appear before the Supreme Court. He gave her argument a B, which was higher than the C that he gave to the government's attorney. But he called Ginsburg's oral argument too smart. And I really don't think it's possible for an oral argument before the Supreme Court to be too smart and that it's too intelligent. But another way to read that comment is that he thought that her point of view required too many logical steps. That criticism seems a bit more fair, as these justices are still grappling with this notion that the preferential treatment for women that pervaded American law actually serves to undermine sex equality. So after oral argument, as always, the justices met in conference. Notes from Justice Douglas suggest that the justices were very focused on the fact that this sex classification was in the tax context. Justices Powell and Stewart thought that the court would have to, quote, tear up all the tax codes to reverse this. And Chief Justice Berger said there was no doubt that the state had a compelling interest in the tax exemption and that there were all sorts of compelling interests for giving women favorable treatment. Three of the Frontier four from that plurality voted to reverse the Florida Supreme Court. Justices Brennan, Marshall, and White. But we have a defector. The liberal justice, William O. Douglas, who had voted with the plurality in Frontiero. Justice Douglas's majority opinion was characteristically sparse. It was only four paragraphs, and it was very cursory. The opinion focused on the particular burdens that widows face, and the particular deference afforded to legislatures drawing classifications in the tax context. Douglas, Douglas, Douglas. Douglas flipped side from Frontier to Con, and he was also inconsistent in Defunis, that affirmative action case that was argued at the same time as Con. The court decided to dismiss Defunis as moot because the plaintiff in that case graduated from law school shortly after the Supreme Court's term ended. But Douglas issued a dissent from that dismissal, rejecting the affirmative action policy. He wrote that affirmative action stigmatizes African Americans. Yet at the same time, at the very same time, he upheld sex-based preferential treatment, which was not compensatory as it is in the affirmative action case, but invidious. This sort of begs the question, how did Justice Douglas reconcile these two opinions internally? How could he say that affirmative action policies that are designed to ameliorate past discrimination are wrong, but a preferential policy for female widows that was not designed to ameliorate past discrimination but rather to perpetuate stereotypes was right? And I think as to the change from Frontier to Con, we have some notes that show that Justice Douglas confessed to his law clerk, Ira Elman, that he was not particularly concerned with doctrinal consistency, unlike, for example, Justice Brennan. And so when Ginsburg saw these cases come down, she was really critical. She called Justice Douglas's opinion a defective vision, and she said that it was a disgrace from every point of view. But in 1974, so shortly after these decisions came out, Justice Douglas published a memoir of his early years called Go East, Young Man. I actually have a picture of the cover of that memoir on the Ginsburg Tapes Instagram. The memoir emphasized the financial difficulties that his mother faced as a widow because his father died when he was only five years old, leaving behind his wife and three children. Douglas's mother struggled to make ends meet, and Douglas, his brother, and his sister had to work throughout their youth in order to contribute to the family to help them stay afloat. His personal experience and empathy for the financial difficulties that widows face must have made it too hard for him to strike down the Florida law that granted some modicum of support for widows, and it must have given him a blind spot to the pernicious effects of this particular form of discrimination. Justice Brennan, the author of The Plurality in Frontiero, wrote a dissent that was joined by Justice Marshall. He wrote that classifications based on characteristics over which individuals have no control, such as gender, must be subject to strict scrutiny. He also wrote that the $500 property tax exemption may be obtained by a financially independent heiress as well as by an unemployed widow with dependent children. 
so the state's interests could be served by a more narrowly drafted statute. Justice White's separate dissent was surprisingly strong. It was the only dissent that really reflected an understanding of Ginsburg's main point. A sex classification tangibly benefiting women was ultimately harmful because it perpetuated sex role stereotyping. If the tax exemption was truly for the purpose of remedying past discrimination, it should have been extended to those who were members of a disadvantaged racial group or those who were unable to break out of the cycle of poverty. Ginsburg's reaction to the court's decision in Kahn was amazement and disappointment. After the decision came out, she wrote that the state of the law concerning sex discrimination could euphemistically be described as muddled. The only other sex discrimination case that term was also a loss. In Schlesinger versus Ballard, the court upheld a military ruling granting female Navy officers a longer time to achieve promotion under the Navy's policies. But the ruling wasn't motivated by a genuinely compensatory purpose, that is, to ameliorate past discrimination against women in the military and to set women on the right track. Instead, it was motivated by the same sort of sexual stereotyping at issue in Freed, Frontiero, and Khan. But as the saying goes, the arc of the moral universe is long. And the next term, the 1974 term, will turn the tide. And two of those key cases were argued by none other than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're going to dive into those cases in episode 3 and 4, which will come out on March 1st and April 1st. And that's a wrap. This is a side hustle in a one-woman operation, so I'm relying entirely on word of mouth to get the word out about the podcast. And so if you enjoyed the show, it'd be a huge help if you rate and review it and share it with a friend. If you're interested, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ginsburg Tapes. And if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at GinsburgTapes at gmail.com and I'll answer it on the show. I'd especially like to thank my dear friend and brilliant lawyer with the biggest heart, the one and only Jody Liu, for her feedback on the draft of this episode. And I'd like to thank Michael Schoengold, my partner and roommate, for being so supportive as I've taken over our living room as my recording studio for months without an end in sight. Next time, we're going to take a deep dive in Edwards versus Healy, which is about women's obligation to serve on juries. Until then, I hope everyone has a wonderful February. 